Well, we're spending the month of May going through the book of Joel, and it's a message that God gave to the people of Judah. Uh, they had ignored and God, they had rebelled against him for generations. And then they were, because they had done that, they were soundly defeated by, by an enemy army. And they were sent into exile for years and years and years away from God's promised land, away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, which by the way, had been destroyed and demolished and broken down to its very foundations. And there, as they God turned, though, he brought them back and restored them to their lands. But even now, as they are at this point, when Joel is giving this prophecy, they've been restored to the land that God had promised them. They have rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And yet, they're still only a shadow of their former selves. In its zenith, Israel, Jerusalem, the temple, was seen as a wonder. Jerusalem was described by both Jews and outsiders as a shining city. Whenever you would come over and you would see it, you would see the sun shining on it. It was a beautiful city. And in the middle, the height, the highest part of the city was the jewel of the Jewish people. It was the temple of God. It was a wonder of the ancient world. It was a wonder of beauty and a wonder of engineering. It was beautiful, amazing. It was the pride of the people. And they were a major power in their zenith. They had great wealth. But the true treasure, the true treasure of the people was hidden inside the temple behind a thick veil. And that is the presence, the living presence of the living God. In a way, God is presence everywhere, right? And yet his special presence dwelt inside the temple behind a thick veil, but it was the only place in the world where that existed. The only place where God's manifest presence dwelt was among the people of Israel in Jerusalem, in the temple, behind a thick veil. That presence was unique and that presence made God's people unique. It's what made the Jewish people, it's what made the Israelites, it's what made Jew, it's what made Jerusalem a special place, it's what made them a special people. But now by this point, when Joel gives this prophecy, they're only at a, a shadow of what they had been before. The temple had been rebuilt, but whenever they laid the foundation of the temple, when they're rebuilding it, all of a sudden... When they, they came together to celebrate it, it says that all the people who'd been apart, they began to celebrate, but yet you could still hear over the cheers of the people, you could hear the older people wailing and weeping and crying because they saw and recognized how much smaller the temple was than it had been before. You see, we're so prone to accept less than what God has promised. We're so, it's so easy for us to cheer and celebrate less than what God has for us, less than what God has promised us. But even now it's even worse by the time Joel gives this prophecy because God's presence had been removed from his people. They had again had ignored and rebelled against him. They had forgotten him and now locusts have shown up. And in any society, a plague of locusts Wave after wave, the way that Joel describes would have been 
incredibly difficult to overcome, but in an agrarian society, it was crippling. Wave after wave of locusts, as we saw last week, came in and swept the land and ate every living thing that they could find, every plant they could find. It even describes the bark. They ate things, the trees down to the inner wood. Their trees were left bare. And we get to chapter two, and what we see happens is that God turns up the heat because they still aren't getting the message that he has for them. He still isn't getting the message that you, your problem isn't that you are less wealthy or less important or less powerful than you've been before. The the problem is that your hearts have grown hard. You've rebelled against me. You've ignored me and you've accepted less than my presence in your midst. The one thing that I promised you that would make you unique, the one source of true joy. And the wording that God uses here, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, is incredibly daunting and intimidating, and it should be. God describes the army of locusts that have come in and are coming in. He describes them as an army that he is the commander of. He describes them as being well-ordered and coming into the cities, coming over the walls, breaking through the barricades and coming in and consuming like a powerful, mighty army, consuming all that the Israelites have. And it says that he, they are his army. You know what that says? And this is intimidating and a little bit scary, but stick with me. It says that God, at times, for the good of his people, will fight against his people so that we don't continue to go the wrong way. Mothers, on this day, how many of you already, in the day that you thought, hey, I I really would like to be pampered, or maybe not even pampered, I would just like a few moments of oasis. How many of you have already had to discipline your child or children They think that you're being incredibly mean and hard, but you know it's for their good. They feel like you're attacking and coming after them, but you know it's for their good because you love them, but they can't see it. And that's the way God describes his movement against the people of Judah. He says, because I love you so much, I have gathered an army against you because I'm trying to gather your attention. The, the, the word, the locusts themselves and the wording that he uses to describe how the locusts are coming in are all worded in a way it's meant to capture attention. It's meant to cause the people of Judah who hear this prophecy to say, man, God must be serious. Not just because the locusts have come through and are continuing to come through, but because God is describing them as him army, as his army, like he's fighting against us. He's consuming us. It's meant to gather and grab their attention and it's meant to bring a fear of the Lord upon them. You know, we tend to live life very cavalierly. We tend to think that we're in control. And our society tells us that you can achieve whatever, whatever you want to achieve. You are in control of yourself and your life. Nobody can make you do anything. And the only limit to what you can achieve is the amount of energy and effort that you're willing to put in. 
We think that we are the kings of our lives, the master of our own domains. But God will bring in things into our lives. He will bring in things that cause us to, it feels evil, it feels hard. It feels hard to understand. How could God bring in locusts that would consume food for my children and my family? But God says, I, you have forgotten the most essential and most important things. You are not in control of your own life. I alone and the Lord your God. And life and health and wholeness could not be found in anyone, in any place other than me. He will bring in things into our lives that cause us to remember who exactly he is. And that is that when anyone, when we see in scripture, appears before and sees the Lord, it causes them not to say, oh, hey, Lord, it's you. Give me a high five. It causes them to fall down on their face as if they were dead and to even sometimes beg for mercy. Cause the mountains to fall down upon me that I don't have to look upon his face. This week I was in my devotions. I was reading through Exodus. And one of the most beautiful, amazing things happened to the people of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt. Moses, if God decides he's going to meet with the people, he's going to make a covenant with them. He calls Moses to come up on the mountain and he reveals his glory on the mountain. And it has this effect on God's people that has brought them out of Egypt, split the Red Sea, caused man to like honey bread to fall from heaven every morning, drops quail on them, cause water to rush out of rock. It causes those people that seen that provision from that God to look upon that shadow of his glory and say, Moses, you go and talk to him because we don't want to see him or be, be around him. The Lord God is not someone to play with. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is in control of heaven and earth. He formed the universe with words. He holds it together by the effortless power of his glory. It takes no effort for him to know everything that's going on or to hold things together to govern all events that happen, not only on earth, but through the multiple universes, uh, sorry, multiple galaxies that are around us. To govern the stars and their burning, to govern the comets and their flying, to govern the, the meteors that are floating through. He has, it takes to no effort to know where the smallest ant is at this moment, what he is doing now, what he will do five seconds from now. He has, it takes no effort for him to know how many follicles or hair, or hair are on your head or are not, or to what every thought that you and you and you and you are having, what thought you're going to have a moment from now or 10 moments from now. For of, out of the billions of people across the world, that exists now and have existed. He alone is the Lord God Almighty and he is not one to be trifled with. He created us for himself and for his glory. We exist by him and for him. And it is a myth, it is a mythology, it is a lie for any of us to think that we exist for any other reason than for him alone or by him alone. To think that we can determine and govern our own destiny. To determine what steps I will take or what my life will look like. like. That's my decision alone. It is so foolish. It's like an ant trying to determine whether I'm going to stomp it or not. He can make all kinds of plans. But he's very limited. I'm not saying that we're ants. That God doesn't care for us like ants. I'm just talking about whenever a person gets around the presence and the power and the glory of God, we lose bravado. We lose confidence. And something else happens 
It weans us from the idea and the mythology and the lie that life and health and wholeness and joy and happiness is found anywhere else or in anyone else. The locust came to humble the proud. The locust came to redirect the attention of God's people in the only one direction that it should be. How does the Lord try to get your attention? What has the Lord and is the Lord orchestrating in your life consistently? It feels gnawing at you or maybe it's big things that all of a sudden you can't ignore anymore. What has the Lord done to gather your attention to cause you to realize that you are looking for life and health and wholeness anywhere other than him? Or from anyone other than him? What has the Lord done to try to get our attention as a church and as an American church and as a nation, as a people? What has he done? Well, what is he trying to get our attention for? What, what is it he's trying to get our attention to? It's interesting. Joel doesn't lay out the list of sins like other prophets do about this is exactly what the people of Israel have done. He doesn't tell us. I think it makes it sort of a universal book. What would be the problem with us? What could God be trying to get your attention and our attention for? We're, we're known for a, a casual, breezy Christianity. Because we're casual, breezy Christians. Like, these are things that out, like, my church would say in youth group and other places, like, hey, let's do church differently so people can know Christians can be cool too. That's sort of a silly argument. A casual, breezy Christianity, like a cool band and a catchy speaker and a youth ministry where we give away trips and prizes, a, a children's ministry where we slide the child in on a slide into the children's ministry, where we give away cars and iPhones as prizes in order for you to come to church. It communicates a casual, breezy Christianity like, hey, look, we're just another cool business function like McDonald's or Coca-Cola. We're just like anybody else. God's not worth a casual, breezy following. He dwells in deep darkness His presence is a flame of fire. The angels around him continually cry, holy, holy, holy. They never stop saying it. They've seen him for a long time, for eons before we existed. And yet they continue to cry, holy, holy, holy. They don't get tired of saying it. Because his holiness, his glory is endless. It's bottomless. It is draw, draw droppingly beautiful, flabbergastingly amazing. We have a low commitment, highly consumeristic Christianity. We 
We market our churches compared to what other churches offer. We offer more than what they offer. We have, we have less of this that you don't like and more of what you wish you could have at church. Like Christianity is something that we consume. Like, hmm, aren't these fries good? I, I like McDonald's fries better than Burger King fries. These are so good. I like Doxa Church better than so-and-so church. I like that church better than Doxa Church. Mm, it tastes so good and salty in my mouth. A low commitment, highly consumeristic Christianity. We have a sin-tolerant Christianity. When I was younger, I probably was an unhealthy level whenever you would be around other Christians. You wouldn't talk about your sin. On an unhealthy level. I think we hit it. We hit it a lot. But something happened in the kind of swing to, to like own our sin that now we kind of parade it around in, in small groups and conversations. Yeah, this is my sin. I just hold it up there like it's nothing. Yeah, this is, I, I continually fail in this way. I, I, never, I never pray. I never read my Bible. I'm just the Christian I am. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, Jesus died on the cross for me. Yeah, I watch that porn all the time. Uh, yep. Yeah, Praise Jesus for the cross. Yeah, I'm just sort of a gossip. With a sin tolerant Christianity. We have Christians who are more of a group of consumers than a family. We behave like individuals who consume church rather than a family who are deeply enshrined with life together. We have unbelieving Christians who expect very little and pray for even less. We expect very little. We expect a powerless Christianity. And we get a powerless Christianity. I'm not talking about political power. We've strived really hard to get get that. I'm talking about the Jesus kind of power. I'm the kind of power that the early church had when they were outnumbered and unliked by other people, by the masses of people around them, and yet continually, day by day, they were added to those who were being saved. They cared for the poor. They reached out for those who were unloved and unliked. They lived lives of joy in the midst of threat. They lived a life of peace in the middle of incredible poverty and, and otherwise despair. They loved. One person of the early Roman, of the Roman Empire said, the, the Christians love freely and yet keep their marriage bed alone. We have Christians who are vastly unconcerned with the loss. Who are more prone to get irritated because that person doesn't believe with me politically than to be stirred with compassion for the person who is very different from them. The other. We have Christians who are unconcerned about the nations. 
Jesus called us specifically to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. And there are peoples and people groups all over the globe who are unreached. And we contain, as an American church, incredible, mind-numbing amount of wealth that if we simply leveraged it, could make an incredible difference. And we throw toppings at it. We have a presence-less community of believers. Do Do we gather? Do you gather? Do you live your life with a sense that God's presence is no longer contained behind a veil in a temple in a city in the Middle East, but rather dwelling in you? And among us together as the new temple. Do people, when they come into our midst, our small groups, our families, our church gatherings, do people come in and even if they don't agree with what we preach and what we say, say there is someone or something there that I can't explain? Do we care for the poor? And the disadvantaged. Do you? Not do they. Do you? And if so, the question comes just like from Joel. How long will you remain where you are? How long will you accept a mediocre Christianity? That's the question. How long will you personally accept a mediocre Christianity? How long will you watch Christ misrepresented due to your lack of faith? That's the question. And you might say, hey, Randy, you're being overly dramatic. Things are fine. But what standard are you measuring whether things are fine? Can you truly say that your life, that your family, that our church, that the American church reflects true scriptural Christianity? Is your character unexplainable to the people around you other than the fact that the spirit of God dwells within you and animates your life from a secret source? Do you enjoy deep personal fellowship with the heavenly father? Do you live life in his presence? Do you regularly see God's power working within you and through you? Does the church, does the church, does our church look like a biblical picture of a city set on a hill? Do we look like a kingdom with a different kind of living? Are we marked as a people by love and graciousness and peace and joy? Christians should be joyful, not happy. Like, we're always happy. We just ignore what's tough and going on. But a joy that comes from our soul. And if not, then how long could the Lord continue for us to continue on the course that we have been on? How would that be loving to us? And how would, we be, how would that be faithful to himself and to his mission? How would it be loving to the lost people around us who don't see the city set on a hill, who don't see Christ in us, who are lost and hopeless around us? How would it be loving to them for him to continue to let us live the way that we have lived? He will not. This is good news. He will not forsake his covenant love with his people. If you 
here this morning, if you are a reborn Christian, you are his child forever, forever and ever and ever. The blood of Christ washes, wash you. You are adopted. You are held by him. He will hold you to the end. But here's also true. He will discipline. And as he tells us in, Re- in Revelation, he will remove the lampstand of a church. That is when a local church or a collective group of believers in America, South Carolina, Horry County, Myrtle Beach, when a group of people ignore him for long enough, the fire and the lamp goes out. His spirit is removed and the land goes fallow. He said this to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Very famous verse. Then he says this, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's the symbol of God's presence with his people. In Exodus 33, God told Moses, he said, your peop- you and your people have stiff neck and hard heart. I, all right, I'll get, I'll get you in the promised land. I'll send an angel before you. I'll destroy all your enemies, but I will not go with you. And here's what the people of Israel called it. They said, when they heard the disastrous word, they mourned and wept and repented. And when God sets himself against us to get our attention, the only thing that is a viable option, the only acceptable response is a drastic return to him. That's what Joel says in verse 12 through 14. Yet even now, hear this, this is the good news. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. He calls his people, he calls us to a holistic return. Did you hear that? He says, with that, with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, he says, don't waste time. Don't just do a, a, a half a kind of repentance. Don't do a half kind of confession. Bring it all. Weep and mourn fast and come and turn to the Lord with all of your hearts. A holistic return. He, said, he calls it he, he, a deep hearted return. He says, did you see that? He says, rend your heart and not your garment. What is he saying? He says, don't accept any surface level change. Don't just go out and try to change some things that you do. Don't, in other words, don't try to go, just simply go out and be better without focusing on rending your heart, tearing your heart, coming with full, deep repentance, demanding of yourself a full, deep repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a turning from that way to that way. It's a turning from our own way to the Lord. It's not just a way. It's not just changing the manner of life that we live. It is turning from ourselves to the Lord. That's what repentance is. It's not just saying, I'm going to go out and study my Bible more, attend church more, I've stopped watching those movies or do these, whatever the things that popped in your head. It is turning to the Lord, the person of Jesus Christ. He says, come with a deep 
hearted, a holistic, with all of your being a return to him. And he says, this is the manner of return. Verses 15 and 16, blow the trumpet in Zion. That's the picture of the church when you see it in Old Testament prophecy. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. In other words, mark the moment. We talked about it last week. Mark the moment. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. In other words, make it a big deal. Call everybody together. Consecrate yourselves and together say, this is the most important thing in our lives. The most important thing in the world that we return to the Lord. Not that we replant our vineyards, but we've got to do that. Not that we go out and replant all the agriculture that we've lost, but know to return with all of our hearts to the Lord. Crying out to him together. And here's what is amazing about this is that underlying all the bad news that we've heard is incredible good news. Because if God calls us to repentance, it means there is hope. When God calls us to repentance, it means there's hope. Repentance can be hard and distasteful because it means fully acknowledging the depth of the problem of my own soul, of our church, of our nation, of our, the national American Christianity that we have accepted, all of that. But it accepts, and it accepts full personal responsibility. It's not their problem. It's not their problem. It's not the Democrats or the Republicans or that kind of church or this kind of church. It's me. It's in me. It seeks, repent, true repentance seeks and waits and lasts until God, show me any wicked way that is within me. Help me see the idols that are in my life that I may turn from them by your grace and your power back to you. It accepts personal responsibility, but it also accepts corporate responsibility. You see that? It's people together who are crying out to the Lord. They're saying, we as a people have done this. Even, even if things that I have not personally repent, been a part of, yet I recognize that we as a people, we as a local church, we as a national church, we as Christians have accepted and it accepts corporate responsibility that we together must cry out and confess sins, even if it wasn't my part that I played. It accepts responsibility, it tastes the bitterness, but yet repentance also believes that there is a God who will accept us when we return to him. Repentance is based on the belief that God is a God who will help us even to return to him. Not just that he's waiting way back there if we'll run back to him, but that he will be the one who will even help us to turn. Because repentance ends with a crying out to God. Did you hear that? He says, come and help us. They said, the, they said the priests, they prayed and cried out and wept, spare your people, O Lord. Repentance says, we've made a mess of things. We don't know how to get back. But we are turning back to you. But we need your help to even come and fix our mess. We need you to come even and help us turn back to you. And here's the, the motivation to even do that. Yeah, God deserves it. God is almighty and all powerful and he deserves our everlasting praise and worship. He deserves all our devotion. 
But here is what stirs our hearts to really want to return to him. Did you hear that in verses 13 and 14? Return to the Lord your God. Why? For. For he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Will that God bring bring you back? No matter how far you've gone, will that God bring you back to himself? No matter how far a church or a country has gone, will that kind of God bring us back? A God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, rich or abounding or overflowing with faithful or steadfast or covenant love. The kind of God who relents, who doesn't want to see disaster, who turns away from disaster. And that wording, that last phrase there, which is very important, perhaps he will stop and leave a blessing instead. Who knows that he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. That phrase there isn't saying maybe he will and maybe he won't. What it is saying is that the Lord is sovereign and can do what he likes, but it's offering hope and showing God's nature and his character because following this is a whole slew of promises about what God will do when he restores his people. It's an urging to turn to the Lord because his desire isn't just to relent from disaster, but to offer us a blessing instead. Not just to stop the locusts from coming, but turn and give a blessing instead. That's the gospel of Jesus. Jesus not only takes our sin and our punishment, but he offers back in return his life and health and wholeness. He offers his standing before the Father back to us in return. He takes our sin. He takes our punishment. He took it upon himself. He takes it upon himself even now as the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And he gives us back in return life and love and his standing as the Son of God before his Father for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't try to change yourself. Don't try to be better. Don't just rend your garments and change your behavior. Turn with your heart to the Lord. Turn to Jesus who shows the Father is rich and merciful in love towards us. He is abounding in graciousness towards us. He is merciful to those who are sinners who turn to him. He, Jesus, is the proof that God will receive us when we turn to him. He is the proof of God's goodwill towards us as human beings and his steadfast, forever love towards us. And he promises the restoration of his people. He says this, you have to turn there, way down in verse 25. He says, I will restore to you the years the swarming locust is eaten. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of your Lord, the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And you shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel. My presence will be restored to you. My power will be restored to you. You will know that I'm the Lord your God and there is no other. And I'm rich, abounding in eternal 
covenant, steadfast love to those who are mine. I'm going to pray and we're going to have the band come forward. They're going to sing a song, play a song for us. Provide us a few moments of meditation. That if the Lord has spoken to you in any way this morning, the almighty creator God, and this is a holy moment for you to bow your head before him and commune and communicate with him. If the Lord has placed conviction upon you for something, it's a time to rend your heart, said not your garment, and turn back to him. And then, when you hear the music change, the communion service will come up. There'll be one a, a service, a station on each side. If you're a believer in Christ, then feel free to come forward and accept the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That is your promise that he will relent from disaster and knowing that, but he will leave you a blessing. But don't take it for, for, for granted. Don't take the broken body and the shed blood for granted. Don't abuse it. Come this morning with a humble heart. Come this morning with confession and repentance before your Lord so that you can experience him being gracious and merciful and drawing you in. If you're a believer in Christ, the front will be open for you. Father, I thank you for your mercy and your gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, help us not to ignore the call that you have upon us individually and collectively to turn and to repent. But God, let us do so not in hopelessness, but with joy and peace and hope, knowing that you will bring us in. That you will not only bring us in, but you will grant us the ability to change. For your glory and for joy, our joy, we pray. Amen.